Our Old Testament text this morning is Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, 1 through 9. This is the living and abiding Word of God. Let's give it our full attention. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive But he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. And our New Testament text, Matthew 26, 31 through 46. Matthew 26, 31 through 46. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying, the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together that he'd bless it to our hearts. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the prophet, the one who speaks what is true, who reveals to us the gospel, who reveals to us all that God is for us. So would you come and teach us? Would you come and speak your word to our hearts and teach us what we need to hear and give us life by that word, by the power of your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I spent uh, some time during uh, one summer, during my college years, at the Boardwalk Chapel in Wildwood, New Jersey. It's a ministry of the Presbytery of New Jersey, of the OPC down there. It's in Wildwood, New Jersey, right on the beach. Uh, It's a pretty spot of beach. Um, uh, But every night we would hold evangelistic services in the chapel. We'd invite people in. Someone would preach. We'd share the gospel. We'd have songs, that sort of thing. Um, And... uh, at, at the front of the chapel, uh, the big open door to the chapel, was the thing that attracted the most attention, and that was the heaven and hell machine. Um, it sounds like, it, it is what it sounds like. Uh, it's a machine that tells you if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. A um, uh, little bit of a gimmick, in a sense, but it, it started so many conversations with people. Cause people would come up. And they'd see this heaven and hell machine. It was very simple. Uh, just had a, a graphic on the screen. One section, hell, one section, or heaven, and then hell. And then on the board here, it would have a bunch of true and false questions. And you go down and you, you answer the questions. And if you get them all right, the, the, the heaven graphic on the screen would light up. And if you get even one wrong, uh, the, the hell graphic would, would light up. It was, it was provocative. It would, get, it would get people thinking about, oh, wait a second. Just about everyone who took it thought they were going to heaven and thought they knew what the answers were. But nine out of ten got the same answer wrong. And the one question that without fail seemed to catch people up was this. Um, if you do good, you'll go to heaven. If you do enough good, it outweighs the bad and you'll go to heaven. True or false? And, and nine times out of ten, people coming by would say, well, that, that's true. If I do enough good, I'll, I'll go to heaven. Uh, but um, that just shows the, the, the propensity of our heart, the bent of our heart towards thinking that we can please God with our own obedience. Thinking that we are sufficient in ourselves to save ourselves. That, that, that's the way our hearts are, are hardwired by sin to think that, that if I do enough, if I work enough, if I do enough, I've got this. Um, But the gospel says that is absolutely wrong. 
You do not have this. You are a hopeless sinner. You cannot save yourself. So stop trying to cobble together your clumsy self-righteousness. Let go of it. And turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the righteous and faithful one. As, As we turn our attention to Matthew's account of our Lord Jesus leading up to the Garden of Gethsemane and then there in the garden, we need to see, loved ones, the essential point in it all is the, is the perfect faithfulness and obedience of our Lord Jesus. We get this, this, this stark contrast in these verses between the disciples on the one hand and their utter failure and faithlessness, and then on the other hand, the shining, perfect righteousness and faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these, these verses show us Show us Christ. They show us, they show us two things about, about Christ in particular that I want to I want to focus on this morning together. They show us his passive obedience and his and his active obedience. Those are those are uh, two terms that theologians use to describe the way that Christ's obedience works. On the one hand, Christ is it has a passive obedience where he suffers in our place for our sin. And on the other hand, he has an active obedience where he does good. He does what's right. He submits himself actively. And these are two facets of our Lord's obedience on which all our salvation and all our hope rests. I want to consider them together this morning. The first section of the text, verses 31 through 35, emphasizes Christ's passive obedience. And so here's, here's our first point. It's very simple. Christ pays for your forgiveness. Christ pays for your forgiveness. Uh, last week we were looking at uh, the Lord's Supper, Christ teaching on the Lord's Supper as he institutes that sacrament with his disciples at Passover. And he takes the bread and he takes the cup. He breaks the bread, he pours out the cup, and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for your forgiveness. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's crystal clear that he's saying to his disciples, I'm the one who pays for your sins. It's not the lamb that's slaughtered and sacrificed at the temple. It's me. I'm the lamb, and I pay for your sins. That's the point there in the upper room. And then that's the point our Lord makes again and that we see so clearly as he has this conversation now with his disciples uh, in verses 31 through 35. Um, He tells them here a couple of things. First of all, we see who, 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 who they are and who we are. And then he shows them who he is. First, he tells them who they are, and it's not very encouraging. Um, He tells them that they are failed, errant, faithless sheep who are more like unbelievers than believers. Um, Verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. All of you, without exception, Will be, will, be, will be made to trip and fall because of me this, this night. When the disciples see what Jesus is going to have to suffer, their faith is going to collapse into self-preservation and fear, and they're going to run, uh, run, run, run from him. They're going to act like men with no faith at all. Their, 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 their fear and their faithlessness is, is embarrassing, isn't it? Um, how many people in the history of the world have been faithful to their leader to the point of death? 
plenty of examples from, from, from history of, 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 of men who had a leader, and when their leader was in danger, they didn't run away. They were faithful to him. What's wrong with these disciples? That, that, that they're not faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they, they show this remarkable disloyalty to their Lord. But Jesus says, uh, this, is, this is according to uh, what was written. Zacharias 13, verse 7. We read this earlier. Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13, which we read, uh, warns us that when God strikes the shepherd, the sheep, the, 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 those who are the people of God in the covenant, will be, will be scattered. And then it goes on in, in verse 8, Zechariah 13, 8. It says that two-thirds of these sheep will be cut off and they'll die. They'll, they'll be judged by God as, as the unfaithful and the ungodly and the disloyal. And then verse 9 says that one-third will, will, will come through the fire preserved. Jesus is saying to his disciples, referencing Zechariah 13, uh, you're going to act like the unfaithful, disloyal sheep who are going to be uh, scattered, who are then going to be destroyed, those not refined by the fire, but those burned by it and destroyed under the judgment of God. You're going to act like the faithless, faithless sheep. Um, and themselves, he's saying, they, they are not faithful. They don't have they don't have enough courage. They don't have enough strength. They have no hope of saving themselves. He tells them that. But, but then he also shows them who he is. Because he's the one who will not fail. He tells them that he's the shepherd who's going to be struck for their sake. Um, Zechariah 13 tells us that um, the shepherd is the one who's God's friend. His close companion. But God himself is going to take his sword against this shepherd, this good shepherd. This one who alone is righteous, alone is faithful, alone is obedient, is going to take the wrath of God for the sake of his people. So Jesus is making to his disciples this, this clear point about his death. He's saying, my death is not as a, as a hero or, or, a, or a martyr. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to make a courageous last stand and go down in a blaze of glory. Um, I'm going to go to the altar like a lamb to be sacrificed obediently and quietly for your sake. This is uh, a stunning display of grace because Jesus is telling his disciples, in the very moment when you are going to be faithless, I'm going to go be faithful to death to save you for your, for, for, for your, from your sin. Even as they are going to run in fear and act like not God's people, Jesus is going to save them and make them God's people. Give his life for them. Jesus is... Then going, then going to be raised up, he says. And he gives them this confidence that he will be raised up and go before them to Galilee. And so Jesus is making this contrast. Disciples, you are faithless. And you are sinful. And you don't have what it takes. But I'm the shepherd who is going to give my life for you. I'm the faithful one. And I will die for your forgiveness. That's what he says. But the disciples aren't having it at all. Uh, how do they respond? Um, 
Peter, speaking for the whole group, says, Lord, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. What's he saying? Jesus, you're wrong about me. I know me. I'm faithful. I'm loyal. I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. Uh, I'm different from everyone else might fall away, but I'm the exception. I know, Lord, that that I have what it takes in myself to follow follow you. Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You don't. He tells him uh, with even uh, firmer words here. He says, truly, I say to you, this night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Three times means it wasn't a slip of the tongue. It wasn't a a brief, momentary lapse in Peter's will to be faithful, but it was the settled choice of his fearful heart to deny Jesus and deny Jesus and deny Jesus. Jesus says, right now, you've got this overconfidence in yourself, but it's going to be completely broken tonight. Before the cock crows, the... uh, Apparently, according to one of the commentaries, roosters in Palestine crowed very early, between 12.30 and 2.30 in the morning. So this is coming, this is coming right up. Jesus says, just a, just a few hours, Peter, and you are going to absolutely fail. Notice the word Jesus uses for what Peter's going to do. He's go, you're going to deny me. Um, does that word deny ring, ring a bell? Think, think about where that word is used elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. Remember those famous words of discipleship, the call to discipleship in Matthew 16, 24, where our Lord says, if anyone would come after me, let him, take up his, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the same context where Peter has just said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, now here's what it means if you're going to follow the Christ, the Son of the living God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. But now here's Peter, uh, the night uh, night where Jesus is going to be betrayed. And Jesus says, you're going to not deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You're going to deny me. You are going to fail at the first basic step of discipleship. Discipleship, following Jesus, begins with deny yourself and follow me. So Peter is in denying Christ, renouncing that, denying Christ and not following him. Again, Jesus, Jesus says this. How does Peter respond? He still doesn't get the lesson, does he? He says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples say the same thing. We will be faithful unto death for you, Jesus. What's wrong with the disciples here? What are they missing? Well, they're missing two things. They're, they're, they're missing the fact that Christ has come to die for their sins. They, they, they see Christ's death as something, as, as, as perhaps a possibility at this point, even if that were to come to that, where you'd have to die, we'd die with you. But they don't see it as, his, as, as the center of his mission, that he's come to lay down his life for their sins. And then connected with this, they don't see how hopeless they are without him. Um, they have this overinflated self-confidence that they are sufficient in themselves. And they don't need the sacrifice of Christ for their sins. Um, loved ones, what about, what about you? Are you like them? 
Are, are, are we like them in, in, in missing the point of Christ as our Savior? To accept Christ as your Savior, as the only one who can save you from your sins, means you accept the fact that you do not have any faith, strength, righteousness, goodness, sufficiency in yourself. It's, it's to accept that, 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 that we are faithless and that we need the only one who is faithful. So Jesus, Jesus tells us here, know, know, know that you are hopeless without me, but know that I've come to pay for your sins. Then we move on to verses 36 through 46, the second, the second part of the text here. And here we see that Jesus not only pays for our faithlessness, the faithlessness and, and, and our sin, but, but also he, he has unwavering obedience that he counts as ours, that he achieves for us. So here's our, here's our second point. Christ provides you with a perfect righteousness. Christ provides you with a perfect righteousness. Verses 36 through 46. You may know the story of uh, J. Gresham Machen's death. Uh, Machen, of course, was the one who uh, founded the OPC coming out of the liberal mainline PCUSA uh, back in the 1930s. Um, it was December 1937. Uh, he had started the church uh, in, in June 1936. So it's December of 1937. And, uh, um, and he goes, uh, excuse me, no, it's, 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 yeah, December of 1937. And he goes out to North Dakota to, uh, to, to preach and teach and strengthen the churches there. And um, while he's out there, uh, he, he catches pneumonia and, and he takes a turn for the worse. And uh, um, uh, it, it's not looking good and, and, and it, gets, it gets very bad and it's clear that he's going to die. So he dictates a telegram to one of his friends and colleagues back at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, John, John Murray. And uh, this, is, this is what his, his telegram to him was. He said, So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. As we turn to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we see his agony here, loved ones, I want you to see, more than anything else, the essential point here of, of Christ's active obedience on display for us. Other, other places in Scripture will teach us, will give us, will give us propositional truth about, about Christ's active obedience for us. But here we see it in, 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 a, in a story form for us played out in the drama of Christ's obedience, unwavering faithfulness here um, as, our, as our only hope. Um, so Jesus and his disciples go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they go up, this is on the Mount of Olives, and, and they're there, and Jesus wants them to, to watch and wait for him and pray as, as he goes to pray. Uh, he, he, he goes away a little bit from the twelve. He has uh, Peter, James, and John come with him, and then he has them uh, uh, stay and, and pray for them while he goes on a little bit further. Uh, we're told here that our Lord Jesus is, is deeply distressed, that he is sorrowful to the point of death. That's the kind of uh, uh, that intense and overwhelming emotional pain that, that feels like it's going, to, it's going to kill you. Jesus is, is so distressed. He feels this to the very core of his being. Luke's gospel tells us that he's uh, in, in such acute emotional distress at this point that he's sweating drops of, 
of blood. And, 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 and he, he falls on his face and he cries out to God with those famous words, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You ever wonder why he's so upset? Why is he so distressed here? There are so many people who have faced death bravely. Think of the great Greek philosopher Socrates. Goes very calmly to his death. Very brave, it looks like. Why is Jesus so seeming, seemingly scared? Um, or, or, or those who've come after Christ. Right? Some of the stories of the martyrs who've died so faithfully for Christ. Uh, Latimer and Ridley, for instance. English reformers burned at the stake. And as they go to the stake, one says to the other, let us play the man. Why is Jesus distressed? Well, consider what he's going to suffer. He's not distressed simply because he's going to die. He is distressed because of the wrath of God that's coming. We see this in his words where he says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the imagery surrounding the cup is the cup, that, it's, that it's a cup that's full of the wrath and judgment of God. We see this in, in many, many passages. Here, a couple of Psalms 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Job 21.20 calls for the wicked to be destroyed with these words. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. So the cup that Jesus is talking about is this metaphor for the wrath of God. And Jesus is fully aware that as he goes to the cross, he's not just going to experience the awful physical torment of the whips and the crown of thorns and the nails and the shame of being stripped and hung up on that cross to die in front of people, as horrible as all that is, but, but he is going to pay for all the sins of all his people. Think of it, loved ones. What does one sin deserve? The wrath of God. One sin, an act of rebellion against almighty, infinite, eternal God deserves an eternal judgment. Your, your one jealous thought, your one lustful thought, your one proud or angry word deserves hell. And what is Jesus carrying on the cross? And what is he suffering on the cross? All your sin. And every sin of every believer in this room. And, and all the church through all the world and all the ages going all the way back to Adam. And he, he takes it all on himself. And he, and he takes all the wrath of God for all that sin. No wonder he's distressed. No one has ever suffered or will ever suffer like he's about to suffer for his people. And actually, when we see him distressed, it should be a comfort to us, an encouragement to us. What would it mean if Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is perfectly calm? Not a tear in his eyes. No trouble at all in his heart. 
it would mean he wasn't fully man. Right? Jesus comes as the God-man because he has to be fully man as well as fully God in order to offer for us and to achieve for us a human righteousness. God cannot count divine righteousness to us. We are human beings, and we need on our record human righteousness and a record of human faithfulness. Jesus' distress on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane is proof for us, once again, of his full humanity and, it, and, 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 and his human capability to suffer and feel pain and his human faithfulness for our sakes. And so we should rejoice as we see him look so weak in Gethsemane. But he's not weak. He doesn't fail. He doesn't falter. Um, as the question comes, the great test of his obedience comes. Will he obey? Will he, will he obey? This, 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 this choice, this fork in the road. Are you going to submit to God's will and do the hard thing? Or are you going to follow your own will? Think, think about that, that battle, uh, loved ones. No one, no human being has ever won that battle before. You go all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, and the test comes to Adam. Is it going to be your will or God's will? Adam has everything he could possibly want, everything he has to enjoy. There's one fruit that God said, don't, don't eat that one, because God wants to test him to see, is it going to be you or me, Adam? Who's, whose will are you going to submit to and, and follow? He gives him this test. What does Adam do? What choice does he make? Not your will, mine be done. The whole history of the Bible, the whole history of, of, of our human race since then is a history of the same choice, isn't it? Cain, God says, sin is crouching at your door. Cain says, not your will, mine be done. Goes on. Uh, David looks out, sees Bathsheba. He knows God's will, but he says, not your will, mine be done. Right? And it, just, it keeps going and going. Israel, as a nation, over and over, makes the same choice. Lord, not your will, mine be done. I'm going to worship idols if I want to. I'm going to live the way I want to. But then we get to our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he pray? We're, we're, he's standing at this point where, where no one has ever had to pay such a cost and had such a hard road of obedience to follow. And what does he say? Beautiful words. Not my will, but yours be done. The infinite wrath of God hanging over him. He says, Lord, your will be done. If possible, let it pass, but, but your will be done. No one has ever obeyed God like this before. We go back to the disciples. Jesus prays. He goes back to his disciples. What a contrast between that, that, that adamant obedience of our Savior. We go back to the disciples. They're sound asleep. They're not watching. They're not being faithful. He wakes them up. Don't you... I told you to, to watch and pray. Uh, temptation is coming. Testing is coming. I need your prayers and you need your prayers. Uh, uh, disciples, uh, uh, wake up and, and, and pray. Um, 
we see their weakness and their, their failure. He calls them to this obedience. He goes off. He prays again, wrestling right before his father. Father, let the cup pass if possible, but if not, not my will, but yours be done. He prays and he prays. He goes back again. The disciples asleep again. He goes and prays. He's faithful, faithful, faithful. They're faithless, faithless, faithless. The point of the contrast, loved ones, for us is that in the last analysis, there's only one who is faithful and righteous. There's only one. Jesus' disciples are a failure. And loved ones, I hope you see yourself in them. I see myself in them. I hope you see yourself in the disciples. And as you look at their faithlessness, you, you, you know your own faithlessness. We are just like Adam and, and the Israelites and, and, and the disciples. How many times has the test come to you? And you say, not your will, but mine be done. Right? How many thousands of times have you, have, you, have you made the wrong choice? When it wasn't such a cost as Christ was about to pray, but you said, not, not, not your will, God. My, my will be done. We are so, uh, uh, so, so full of love and devotion and loyalty to our own selves over against God. We often deny Him and follow ourselves. We are a failed and faithless and unrighteous people. But loved ones, be encouraged. Because the point of the text before us here is that you are a failed and faithless sinner, but there is one who is not. One, one who is righteous, who, who did not fail, who, who, who perfectly obeyed his Father for you. So that, so that he can give you that record of righteousness and that you can stand before God with Christ's obedience on your record. And I want to draw out three implications of this. Uh, three implications of Christ's obedience here for us. Number one, if Jesus has perfectly obeyed his Father for you, then you are perfectly righteous in God's sight. Look at Christ's obedience and his submission. That's your record. Your choices, every time you've said, not your will, mine be done, that's not your record if you're in Christ. His record is your record. His choice is God's record of your choice. What? My sin covered with His righteousness? God looks at me and He sees this obedience? Yes. That, that, that's His righteousness for you. So with, with the gospel, loved ones, we don't just get sin wiped out. We get righteousness, perfect record of righteousness added to us. That's the first thing. Second thing, if Christ has perfectly obeyed His Father for you, you are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Let me say that again. If Jesus has perfectly obeyed His Father for you, you are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Earlier I uh, mentioned that quote from J. Gresham Machen, telegram he sent at the end of his life about Christ's active obedience. Well, there was a sermon that Machen preached called The Active Obedience of Christ. And in that, in that sermon, uh, he says this, those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming 
unrighteous. How, how, how can that be true? Well, th- think of it. We need to see Christ's obedience in light of Adam's failed obedience. Adam in the garden gets a test from God. Adam stands as the representative of all humanity, and God gives him a test. If you obey, you'll get the reward of life. If you disobey, you'll get, you'll get exile and, and death. And Adam, of course, disobeys. So he owes God a debt for his sin. And Christ comes to, to, to pay the debt. But if Christ only paid the debt, that would leave us right back in the same position as Adam, still having to take the test. Now, kids, think of it like this. Um, if you got a test at school and you fail the test, you get a 45 on a test, right? Just a miserable grade. And the teacher comes to you and says, you know what? I'm going to delete that grade. I'm just going to erase it right out of my record book. But what's the teacher going to do then? I'll let you try again. Is that the gospel? No, the gospel is the grade, the failed grade gets erased. And then the teacher goes and, and finds that, 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 that kid who had the perfect score and writes that 100 in instead. And so your grade is permanent. You don't have to take the test again. Someone else took it for you. You can't fail it. Now, loved ones, that's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. He's come and taken the test. He's deleted Adam's failure and our failure. And then he comes and he takes the test and he gives us this record of righteousness. And that means we do not have to take the test again. And and that means, loved ones, we cannot become unrighteous in God's sight if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is nothing you can do to lose that righteousness if you're holding fast in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third thing, the third implication here, if Jesus has perfectly obeyed his Father for you, then you can and you will also learn to obey him. The submission that Jesus shows in the Garden of Gethsemane to his Father is is just, uh, it's superhuman, isn't it? It, it, we said it's human obedience, but there's something about it. No, no, no human on his own could do that, right? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about us? How do we learn obedience like this? Right? We, we, we want to grow in becoming more like our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get enabled by Christ to pray as he prayed? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done, even if it's a hard, hard thing you're calling me to. Well, Christ gives us Christ gives us his spirit, doesn't he? The same spirit who is in him, strengthening him as he prayed, not my will but yours be done, now is in us. And so our, love, our, our, our Lord Jesus has, has paid the price of our sin. He's given us this perfect righteousness. And he's filled us with his spirit so that more and more we can learn to submit to him. Our catechism teaches us that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. What does he do as our king? Uh, the answer is he, he, he subdues us to himself. That's what he does. He subdues us. He, he gently, lovingly, firmly retrains our will to bow in the right direction to our God. Loved ones, you have no hope in yourself. You are a sinner with an infinite debt and a sinner who needs a perfect record of righteousness, and you are a sinner whose resolutions for obedience collapse with the least temptation, but you have every hope in Christ. 
If you ask Him, He'll pay that infinite debt. And if you ask Him, He'll give you His own perfect record of righteousness. And if you ask Him, He'll subdue your heart and make it strong against temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for our Savior. We thank You for His perfect obedience and His perfect righteousness. Lord, we are so thankful. We have no hope without Him, but every hope in Him. So fill up our hearts with faith, with clear-sighted faith of our perfect Redeemer. It's in His name we pray. Amen.